Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 45, Music and Victory Odes. Today's episode is brought to you by our new June Patreon supporters, Raphael Deutsch and Gabriel Portos, as well as PayPal donors Ben Mon, Lucas Ralston, Bob Armburst, and Robert Porter. I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations in support of the podcast. If you would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you too could become a monthly Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com backslash the history of ancient Greece podcast or a one-time donor at www.paypal.me backslash Ryan Stitt. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Music was almost universally present in ancient Greek society, from marriages, funerals, athletic competitions, and religious ceremonies, to leisure activities, the theater, folk music, and the ballot-like reciting of epic poetry. There are many references to music in Greek myth, indicating that music was an integral part of the Greek perception of how their race had even come into existence, and how their destinies continued to be watched over and controlled by the gods. In fact, the word musica, or music, comes from the muses, the nine daughters of Zeus, and patron goddesses of creative and intellectual endeavors. It is no wonder, then, that music played an integral role in the lives of ancient Greeks. There are significant fragments of actual Greek musical notation, as well as many literary references to ancient Greek music, such that some things can be known, or at least reasonably surmised, about what the music sounded like, the general role of music in society, the economics of music, the importance of a professional cast of musicians, and so forth. Even archaeological remains reveal an abundance of depictions on pottery, for example, of music being performed. The following were among the instruments used in ancient Greek music. Of the stringed instruments, we have the lyre. It was handheld and similar in appearance to a small harp, but with a few distinct differences. Rather than being plucked with the fingers, like a harp, the lyre was usually strummed with a plectrum or a pick. Its base was a sound box, built from a tortoise shell frame. Extending from this are two hollow, raised arms that are connected near the top by a crossbar or yoke, called a zugon. The lyre generally had seven or more strings, knotted around the zugon. These strings were tuned to the notes of one of the various musical nodes. The lyre was used to accompany others, or even oneself, for recitation and song, the lyre was often associated with an aristocratic upbringing and the cult of Apollo. According to myth, the young god Hermes stole a herd of sacred cows from Apollo. In order not to be followed, he made shoes for the cows and forced them to walk backwards. Apollo, hoping to follow their trail, was not able to find out where the cows were going. Along the way, Hermes slaughtered one of the cows and offered all but the entrails to the gods. From the entrails and a tortoise shell, he created the lyre. Apollo, after figuring out that it was Hermes who had his cows, confronted the young god. Apollo was furious, but after hearing the sound of the lyre, his anger faded, and he offered to trade the herd of cattle for the lyre. Hence, the creation of the lyre is attributed to Hermes, 
and has become associated with Apollo as the god of music. Two other variations of the lyre also existed and were supposedly introduced to Greece via Terpander, as we mentioned back in episode 18. While the lyre was traditionally a folk instrument, the seven-string cathara was primarily used by professional musicians. The cathara had a bigger, box-type frame, and so it was held upright. The cathara is believed by many to be the possible origin for the contemporary guitar. The other variation is the barbaton, a taller, bass-like version of the cathara, often associated with satyrs. It was especially popular in the Eastern Aegean and in Asia Minor. A fourth-string instrument is the formix, which consisted of two to seven strings, richly decorated arms, and a crescent-shaped sound box. It is believed to have originated in Mesopotamia, and while it seems to have been common in Homer's day, accompanying the rhapsodes, it was supplanted by the cathara early on. Of the wind instruments, we have the alice, a double-piped reed instrument like the modern oboe. Though the two pipes weren't joined, it was played with a mouth band to hold both steady between the person's lips. A single pipe without a reed was called the monolos, from monos meaning single. A single pipe held horizontally, like the modern flute, was the plagiaolos, from plagios meaning sideways. A pipe with a bag to allow for continuous sound, like a bagpipe, was the askalos, from askos meaning wineskin. The alos and its variations were used for martial music, and also accompanied physical activities, such as wrestling matches, the broad jump, the discus throw, and to mark the rowing cadence on triremes. It was also the standard accompaniment for elegiac poetry, sacrifices, and dramas. It came to be associated by Plato with the ecstatic cults of Dionysus and the Corybantes, and for that, he banned it from his idealized republic. Although aristocrats with sufficient leisure sometimes practiced the aulis, as they did the lyre. After the later 5th century BC, the aulis became chiefly associated with professional musicians, often young slaves. It appears that the instruments were very hard to blow. A leather strap, called a forbea, was worn horizontally around the head with a hole for the mouth by the aulitai, or the aulis player to help support the lips and avoid excessive strain on the cheeks due to continuous blowing. Sometimes a second strap was used over the top of the head to prevent the forbei from slipping down. As a result, aulis players are sometimes depicted with puffed cheeks. According to myth, Marzias, the satyr, was said to have invented the aulis, or he picked it up after Athena had thrown it away because it had caused her cheeks to puff out, and thus it ruined her beauty. In any case, Marseus challenged Apollo to a musical contest, where the winner would be able to do whatever he wanted to the loser. Marseus's expectation, typical of a satyr, was that this would be sexual in nature. But Apollo and his lyre beat Marseus and his aulis. And since the lord of Delphi's mind worked in different ways than Marseus's, he celebrated his victory by stringing his opponent up from a tree and flaying him alive. King Midas of Phrygia was cursed with the donkey ears for judging Apollo as the lesser player. Marseus's blood and the tears of the muses formed the river Marseus, 
in Asia Minor. This tale was a warning against committing the sin of hubris, or arrogant pride, in that Marseus thought he might win against a god. Strange and brutal as it is, this myth reflects a great many cultural tensions that the Greeks expressed in the opposition that they often drew between the lyre and the aulis, that being freedom versus servility and tyranny, leisured amateurs versus professionals, moderation versus excess, and so forth. Some of this is a result of 19th century classical interpretation, pitting Apollo versus Dionysus, or reason, represented by the cathara, opposed to madness, represented by the aulis. In the temple to Apollo at Delphi, there was also a shrine to Dionysus, and his main ads are shown on drinking cups, playing the aulis. But Dionysus is sometimes shown holding a cathara or a lyre too, so a modern interpretation can be a little more complicated than just simple duality. It should be noted, however, that this opposition is mostly an Athenian one. It might be surmised that things were different at Thebes, which was known as a center of Aulis Plain. And we know that at Sparta, which had no Bacchic or Corybantic cults to serve as contrast, the Aulis was actually associated with Apollo and accompanied the hoplites into battle. Two other wind instruments were popular in Greece. The panpipes, also known as the syrinx, were named after the nymph, who in myth was changed into a reed in order to hide from Pan, the lusty half-goat god of nature and shepherds. Naturally, the panpipes were the musical instrument most associated with Pan. They were a series of pipes with increasing length and sometimes girth. They were typically made from local reeds. Sound is produced by blowing across the top of one of the pipes, like blowing across a bottle top, and each length produced a different sound. Finally, we have the salpinx, a very long bronze trumpet-like instrument with a mouthpiece made of bone. There was a bronze bell inside the instrument with varying shapes and sizes that had a unique effect on the sound made. In vase painting, the salpinx is usually depicted as being blown for military calls by a hoplite soldier. 5th century BC authors frequently associate its piercing sound with war, that being the summoning of men to prepare for battle and to sound the charge, as well as in non-martial activities, of the summoning of crowds and the beginning of chariot races. Another more universal function of the salpinx was to use it as a means of bringing silence to a rambunctious crowd or at a large gathering. This was useful both in a social setting, in places such as large assemblies, and as a tool to quiet soldiers while a general addressed his men. Of the percussion instruments, we have a type of frame drum, or tambourine, called the tympanon. It was circular, shallow, and beaten with the palm of the hand or a stick. Some representations show decorations around the rim. This instrument was played by worshippers in the rites of Dionysus, typically by the maenads, while wind instruments were played by satyrs. The performance of frenzied music contributed to achieving the ecstatic state that Dionysian worshippers desired. Along those same lines, the tympanon was also played by worshippers of Sibylle and Sabazios, two Phrygian deities that made their way to Greece during the Archaic period. The iconography of Sibylle as the Great Mother often shows her with the tympanon balanced on her left arm, 
usually seated and with a lion on her lap or at her feet. Next up, we have the crotalon, a kind of clapper or castanet used in religious dances, often by the corybantes, or the armed dancers who worshipped Sibylle, often to the beat of the tympanon. They were either made of split reed, shells, brass, or wood, and clattered when shaken with the hand. The word crotalon was often applied as a metaphor to a noisy, talkative person, used several times, for example, in the works of Aristophanes. And finally, we have the kudonia, a bell-like percussion instrument. Most often, they are made from copper, and upon playing, that is, hitting them with a stick, they give out a special ringing sound. Originally, the kudonia had been used as an amulet, which protected the animals from evil spirits. Later, the kudonia became an auxiliary musical instrument. As is the case with the 6th century BC, lyric poets were still among the most distinguished writers of the 5th century BC, even with the development of Athenian drama and history writing. Simonides, who lived from 556 to 468 BC, is remembered chiefly as the unofficial poet laureate of the Persian Wars. The scholars of Hellenistic Alexandria included him in the canonical list of nine lyric poets. He was born on the Ionian island of Chios, the northwesternmost island of the Cyclades. The innermost island, Delos, was the reputed birthplace of Apollo, and the people of Chios regularly sent choirs to perform hymns in the gods' honor. Chios also had a choreagion, or school where choirs were trained, and it's possible that Simonides worked there as a teacher in his early years. In addition to its musical culture, Chios had a rich tradition of athletic competition, especially in running and boxing, making it a very fertile territory for the genre of choral lyric that Simonides pioneered, that being the victory ode. Chios lies only some 15 miles southeast of Attica, and so at about the age of 30, in 526 BC, Simonides was drawn to Athens and to the court of the tyrant Hipparchus, who, like his father Pisistratus, was a patron of the arts. But after the assassination of Hipparchus in 514 BC, Simonides withdrew north to Thessaly, where he enjoyed the patronage of the Scopidae and Aluidae. These were two of the most powerful families in the Thessalian aristocracy, yet they seemed notable to later Greeks, such as Theocritus, only for their association with Simonides. Thessaly at that time was a cultural backwater, so much so that according to an account by Plutarch, Simonides once dismissed the Thessalians as too ignorant to be beguiled by his poetry. Among the most colorful of his ignorant patrons was the head of the Scopidae clan named Scopus. Fond of drinking, jovial company, and vain displays of wealth, this aristocrat's proud and capricious dealings with Simonides are demonstrated in a traditional count, related by later Roman authors Cicero and Quintilian, according to which, the poet was commissioned to write a victory ode for a boxer. Simonides embellished his ode with so many references to the twins Castor and Pollux, the heroic archetypes of the boxer, that Scopus refused to pay Simonides in full, only paying him half, and sneeringly telling him to collect the other half from Castor and Pollux. Simonides, however, ended up getting much more from the mythical twins than just half of his commissioned fee. 
In fact, he owed them his life. According to this story, when he finished his dealings with Scopus that night at the banquet, he was called out of the feast hall to see two visitors who had arrived and were asking for him personally. As soon as he had left the hall, it collapsed, killing everyone inside, including Scopus. The authors presume that the two young men were in fact the twin gods, saving the life of the man who had flattered them so much. The Roman rhetorician Quintilian dismissed the story as fiction, but felt the need to relay it anyway, because according to tradition, this miraculous escape was said to have inspired Simonides to develop a system of mnemonics based on images and places called the method of loci, which is one component of the art of memory. The story goes that afterwards, Simonides was called upon to identify each guest killed. Their bodies had been crushed beyond recognition, but he completed the gruesome task by correlating their identities to their positions, or loci in Latin, at the feast table before his departure. He later drew on this experience to develop the memory theater, or memory palace, a system of mnemonics widely used in oral societies until the Renaissance. According to Cicero, Themistocles wasn't much impressed with the poet's invention and thus said, quote, I would rather a technique of forgetting, for I remember what I would rather not remember and cannot forget what I would rather forget, End quote. In addition, Simonides is credited with inventing four letters of the Greek alphabet, those being omega, eta, xi, and psi. Whatever the validity of such claims, Indeed, a creative and original turn of mind is demonstrated in his poetry, as he invented the genre of the victory ode, and he gave persuasive expression to a new set of ethical standards. Simonides probably had returned to Athens during the wars with Persia, and it's certain that he became a prominent international figure at that time, particularly as the author of commemorative epitaphs for the war dead. In fact, the Athenians chose Simonides, ahead of the playwright Aeschylus, to be the author of an epigram honoring their war dead at Marathon, which led the tragedian, who had fought at the battle and whose brother had died there, to withdraw, sulking to the court of Huron at Syracuse. Simonides' ability to compose tastefully and poignantly on military themes put him in great demand among Greek states after their victory in the Second Persian Invasion when he is known to have composed epitaphs for dead Athenians, Spartans, and Corinthians, a commemorative song for Leonidas and his men at Thermopylae, poems on the battles of Artemisium, Salamis, and Plataea, and a dedicatory epigram for Pausanias. According to Plutarch, Simonides had a statue of himself made at about this time, which inspired the Athenian politician Themistocles to comment on his ugliness. In the same account, Themistocles is said to have rejected an attempt by the poet to bribe him, then likened himself as an honest magistrate to a good poet, since an honest magistrate keeps the laws and a good poet keeps in tune. There also existed a feud between Simonides and the Rhodian lyric poet Timocreon, because Simonides composed a mock epitaph that touches on the issue of Timocreon's Medism, an issue that also involved Themistocles. The last years of Simonides' life were spent in Sicily, where he became a friend and confidant of Huron of Syracuse and Theron of Acragus. At one point, he acted as a peacemaker between Huron and Theron, and thus avoiding a war between them both. 
This was due to a special status at both courts. At Huron's court, he was said to have been a rival with Pindar, an explanation often given by scholars to explain some of the meanings and perceived attacks at him in Pindar's poetry. If this is true, it may be surmised that Simonides' prior experience at the courts of Hipparchus and Scopus gave him a competitive edge over Pindar. According to tradition, Simonides was the first professional poet, meaning he charged money for his composition of Epinikian odes, meaning poems written Epiniki, or upon a victory. In this case, they refer to victories at the athletic games. He was also known as a miser. According to Athenaeus, while at Huron's court, he used to sell most of his daily provisions that he received from the tyrant. Aristotle writes that he once rejected a small fee to compose a victory ode for the winner of a mule race because it was not a prestigious event. But when the fee was increased, he changed his mind. Aristotle also reported that once when Simonides was asked whether it was better to be wealthy or wise, he replied that it was better to be wealthy because the wise spend their days at the doors of the wealthy. Plutarch records that Simonides once complained that old age had robbed him of every pleasure but making money. All of these amusing anecdotes might simply reflect the fact that he was the first poet to charge fees for his services, or at least the first illustrious one. Simonides' general fame as a wise and colorful personality has led to his inclusion in narratives such as Plato's Protagoras, where he is depicted as the narrator and main character, and in Callimachus's Aetia, where he is amusingly represented as a ghost, complaining about the desecration of his own tomb in Acragus. It was from this same poem by Callimachus that we learn that he was buried outside Acragus, and his tombstone was later misused in the construction of a tower. Timocrian of Rhodes was a Greek lyric poet who flourished at the time of the Persian Wars. His poetry survives only in a very few fragments, but he seems to have composed many jovial scolia, or drinking songs, for the symposium. He also supposedly wrote comedic plays, as he was mocked by Aristophanes for his work. But nothing has remained, and it is likely that he simply composed mocking lyrics. However, he is remembered particularly for his bitter clashes with Themistocles and Simonides over the issue of his medizing, or siding with the Persians for which he had been banished from his home around the time of the Greek victory at Salamis. According to Plutarch, after Salamis, when Themistocles led the fleet against the Aegean islands that had Medized, Timocrian was in exile, possibly on the island of Andros. He supposedly paid Themistocles three talents of silver to restore him to his home in Rhodes. Themistocles took his money, but reneged on the agreement, because he was paid a larger payment by someone else, to keep Timocrian away from Rhodes. Well, as you would expect from a scorned poet, this would gain Themistocles the eternal hatred of Timocrian, who would go on to write slanderous verses about the Athenian statesmen, which are preserved in Plutarch. The first begins like a praise of Aristides, but it quickly devolves into a denunciation of Themistocles' character. Quote, Well now, if you praise Pausanias, and you, sir, Xanthippus, and you, Leotokites, I commend Aristides as the very best man to have come from holy Athens. For Themistocles was hated by Leto as a liar, a criminal, a traitor, 
bribed with baneful silver, not to take Tamakrian home to his native Rhodes, though he was his guest and friend, but instead took his three talents of silver and sailed to perdition, restoring some to their homes unjustly, chasing out others, killing some. Gorged with silver, he made an absurd Isthmian innkeeper, serving cold meat. The guests ate up and prayed that Themistocles would go unnoticed. End quote. The reference here to the goddess Leto, the mother of Apollo and Artemis, is obscure, but she may have had some connection with Salamis, or perhaps there was a temple to her at Corinth. The last sentence, though, refers to the banquet that Themistocles held at Corinth, in an attempt to curry favor with the other Greek commanders to vote him as the most deserving of the prize for valor for the victory at Salamis, but each commander subsequently voted for himself. Anyways, not being allowed to return to Rhodes, Athenaeus reports that following the Persian Wars, Timocrian ended up at the court of the Persian king, though he doesn't specify which king was ruling, either Xerxes or Artaxerxes. Regardless, while there, he distinguished himself as an athlete of some kind of distinction, probably in boxing, and reputedly also a glutton, eating so much that the Persian king eventually asked him what he was trying to do, to which Timocrian replied that he was getting ready to beat up countless Persians who were game enough to fight. Well, he made good on his promise, though the exact number is not recorded. Afterwards, he began to punch the air, just to show that he had blows left if anyone else wanted to take him on. This account may be regarded with skepticism because the vulgarity and gluttony of athletes was a common motif, and even a hero like Heracles was the butt of many jokes. Regardless, Simonides even took a jab at Timocrian, writing a satirical epitaph for him that said, quote, After much drinking, much eating, and much slandering, I, Timocrian of Rhodes, rest here. End quote. A fragment that reads, quote, Nonsense from Chios came to me against my will. End quote. Maybe Timocrian's reply to Simonides' satirical epitaph. Themistocles also ended up at the court of the Persian king, following his ostracism and spectacular fall from Athenian graces, as we discussed in episode 41. And so Timocrian used this opportunity once again to attack Themistocles, though this time he was a bit more subtle. Ascolia, found in Plutarch, records, quote, Muse, spread the fame of this song among the Hellenes, as is fitting and just. Timocrian, then, is not the only one who swears a solemn oath with the Medes. There are other scoundrels, too. And I'm not the only one with a docked tail. There are other foxes, too. End quote. The reference to a docked tail is usually understood to indicate some mishap that the poet suffered. Plutarch identified Themistocles as one of the other scoundrels referred to in the poem. Corina was from Tanagra in Boeotia. According to ancient tradition, she lived during the late 6th and early 5th centuries BC and was said to have been a teacher of Pindar. Other sources claim that she was only a contemporary of Pindar and competed with him in many competitions, managing to defeat him five times. Regardless, like Pindar, she wrote choral lyric poetry, though unlike Pindar, not much of her work has survived. Her poetry concentrates on local myths, and she makes use of the Boeotian dialect, 
possibly to convey her local pride and patriotism. Although her poetry is of interest, as she is one of the few preserved female poets from ancient Greece, it is generally regarded poorly by modern scholars. Some have suggested that she composed her songs for performance by a chorus of young girls in religious festivals, or the ancient genre of Parthenia. Although these songs were written by a woman, Karina tells stories about women's lives from a masculine perspective, which contrasts very differently with Sappho. The last two of the canonical nine poets, not yet discussed in length, are Bacchylides, the nephew of Simonides, and Pindar. The rivalry at Huron's court between Pindar and Simonides would also spill over to Bacchylides as well. Pindar of Thebes, who lived from 522 to 443 BC, was also born into an aristocratic family, and so it allowed him to travel widely and enjoy the patronage of the powerful throughout the Greek world. He studied the art of lyric poetry in Athens, at the court of the Pisistratids, where his tutor was Lassus of Hermione, and he was also said to have received some helpful criticism or teachings from Carina, as we previously mentioned. He also learned how to play the flute-like Aulus from his father. According to tradition, he was stung on the mouth by a bee in his youth, and this was the reason that he became a poet of honey-like verses. Although he probably spoke Boeotian Greek, he composed in a literary language that relied more on the Doric dialect and had a mixture of other dialects, especially Aeolic and Epic. Alexandrian scholars collected his works into 17 books, organized by genre. He composed choral odes of all types, but only the four books of victory odes, each named after one of the four Panhellenic festivals that held the respective games, survive in complete form, while the rest survive only in quotations by other ancient authors or from papyrus scraps unearthed in Egypt. Noble families hired Pindar to immortalize their athletic achievements for all four of the Panhellenic Games through poetry. Even still, in the 5th century BC, when there was an increase towards professionalism, the athletic games were still predominantly aristocratic in nature, reflecting the expense and leisure needed to attend such events, either as a competitor or a spectator. Attendance was an opportunity for display and self-promotion, and the prestige of victory went far beyond anything that accrues to athletic victories today, even in spite of the modern obsession with sport. Pindar's odes capture something of the prestige and the aristocratic grandeur of the moment of victory. These odes were performed either at the celebration surrounding the champion's return to his home polis, or perhaps at the anniversary of his victory. They were performed by a chorus that sang and danced to the musical accompaniment of the Aulus or Formix. Commissions took Pindar to all parts of the Greek world, not only to the Panhellenic festivals in mainland Greece, at Olympia, Delphi, Corinth, and Nemea, but also westwards to Sicily, eastwards to the seaboard of Asia Minor, northwards to Macedonia and Abdera and southwards to Cyrene on the African coast. In 498 BC, he received his first commission by a ruling family in Thessaly to compose his first victory ode, labeled Pythian Ode No. 10. The early to middle years of Pindar's career 
coincided with the Persian invasions of Greece in the reigns of Darius and Xerxes. During the invasion in 480-479 BC, when Pindar was almost 40 years old, Thebes was occupied by Xerxes' general Mardonius, who with many Theban aristocrats subsequently perished at the Battle of Plataea. It is possible that Pindar spent much of this time at Agina, as he writes quite a few odes for victorious Agenetans. His choice of residence during the earlier invasion in 490 BC is not known, but he was able to attend the Pythian Games for that year, where he first met the Sicilian prince, Thrasybulus, nephew of Theron of Acragus. Thrasybulus had driven the winning chariot, and he and Pindar were to form a lasting friendship, paving the way for his subsequent visit to Sicily. Unlike his uncle, Simonides, the details of Bacchylides' life are sketchy. Even the year he was born is unknown. Most scholars believe that he was slightly younger than Pindar, and so he would have been born at some point in the last quarter of the 6th century BC. The date for Bacchylides' death is also unknown, but it is estimated to occur at some point in the mid-5th century BC. According to Plutarch, he was banished for a time from his native Chios for an unstated reason, and spent his time as an exile in the Peloponnese, where his genius ripened and he did the work which established his fame. His poems were collected and arranged into nine books by the Alexandrian scholars. They wrote commentaries on his work, and his poems were popular reading in the Roman Empire. Due to the ravages of time, though, only about a hundred lines of his work had survived. That is, until the 19th century, when a papyrus was found in the Egyptian desert with about 1,000 almost complete lines of his verse. From this, it has been concluded that he cultivated almost all of the known types of lyric poetry. Six of his nine books contain sacred poetry, that being dithrams, paeons, hymns, processional songs, parthenea, and dancing songs, while the other three contain secular poetry that being the victory odes, love poems, and praise poems. Bacchylides' career as a poet benefited from the high reputation of his uncle, who introduced him to the ruling families in Thessaly and to the Syracusan tyrant Huron. His first notable success came sometime after 500 BC with commissions from Athens for the Great Delian Festival, known as Ode No. 17, and from Macedonia, for a song to be sung at a symposium for the young prince, Alexander I. Bacchylides shared his uncle's interest in composing victory odes, though, and soon he was competing with Pindar for commissions from the leading families of Agina. And in 476 BC, their rivalry seems to have reached a high point when Pindar composed a poem for Huron's victory in the chariot race at the Olympics, known as his Olympian Ode No. 1. Bacchylides, though, composed an ode too for Huron, his ode number five, free of charge in the hope of attracting future commissions. Since both poets celebrated the same race, these two poems allow for some interesting comparisons. Bacchylides' ode number five includes, in addition to a brief reference to the victory itself, a long mythical episode on a related theme, and a gnomic or philosophical reflection. Elements that occur also in Pindar's Olympian Ode No. 1, and that seem typical of the victory ode genre. However, whereas Pindar's Ode focuses on the myth of Pelops and Tantalus, 
and demonstrates a stern moralizing about the need for moderation and personal conduct, a reflection on Huron's political excesses. Bacchylides' ode focuses on the myths of Meleager and Heracles, demonstrating the moral that nobody is fortunate or happy in all things, possibly a reflection on Huron's chronic illness. This difference in moral posturing was typical of the two poets, with Bacchylides adopting a quieter, simpler, and less forceful manner than Pindar. Well, Huron must have enjoyed Bacchylides' ode more, because following his next chariot race victory, this time in the Pythian Games in 470 BC, Bacchylides, not Pindar, received the commission to celebrate his triumph, which would be his ode number four. Taking a page out of his rival's playbook, Pindar too composed an ode free of charge for Huron's victory, his Pythian ode number one, once again including stern moral advice for the tyrant to rule wisely. In doing so, he celebrated a series of victories by the Greeks against foreign invaders, those being the Athenian and Spartan-led victories against Persia at Salamis and Plataea, and victories by the Western Greeks, led by Huron and Theron of Acragas, against the Carthaginians and Etruscans at the battles of Himera and Cumae, respectively. Pindar, though, was not commissioned to celebrate Huron's subsequent victory in the chariot race at the Olympic Games in 468 BC. This one, which would be known as his most prestigious victory, was celebrated once again by Bacchylides, his ode number three. The tyrant's apparent preference for Bacchylides over Pindar might have been partly due to Bacchylides' simpler language and gift for gripping narrative, and not just to Pindar's moralizing posture. But yet it is also possible that Bacchylides and his uncle were simply just better suited to palace politics than was their more high-minded rival. Yet, in the 6th and early part of the 5th centuries BC, such palace patrons were gradually losing influence in an increasingly democratic Greek world. This kind of lofty and stately lyric poetry that celebrated the achievements of these archaic aristocrats would eventually be surpassed as the leading poetic genre by tragedy, as developed by the Athenian dramatists Aeschylus and Sophocles. They borrowed the literary dialect, the meters, and the poetic devices of lyric poetry in general, and the dithram in particular. The debt, however, was mutual, and Bacchylides borrowed from tragedy for some of his effects too. For example, his Ode number 16 with its myth of Dianera, seems to assume that the audience already has knowledge of Sophocles' play, The Women of Trachis, and his ode number 18 echoes Aeschylus' two plays The Persians and Suppliants and Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos. His vocabulary shows the influence of Aeschylus with several words being common between both poets and found nowhere else in the entire Greek canon. He also shared his uncle Simonides' approach to vocabulary, employing a very mild form of the traditional literary Doric dialect, and with some Aeolic words and some traditional epithets borrowed from Epic. Quite a few of the words that Bacchylides utilizes are of his own invention. They are usually compound adjectives, which are formed by combining two other adjectives. For example, bronze-helmeted. Bacchylides is also renowned for his use of picturesque detail, giving life and color to descriptions with small but skillful touches, often demonstrating a keen sense of beauty or splendor in nature. 
The use of gripping and exciting narrative and the immediacy gained from the frequent use of direct speech are thought to be among Bacchylides' best qualities. These narrative qualities and his lyrical treatment of heroic myth were modeled largely on the work of Stesichorus. But where Stesichorus developed graphic images in his poetry that subsequently became established in vase painting, Bacchylides, however, merely employed images already current in his own day. Bacchylides thus might be better understood as an heir to Stesichorus, being more concerned with storytelling per se, than as a rival of Pindar. Although Huron may have preferred Bacchylides to Pindar, that comparison is not in Bacchylides' favor with the majority of modern scholars. That is not to say that his merit as a poet is small, but although Bacchylides is unparalleled in his narrative ability and adept at small stratagems, he uses a much less complex language and offers, in a pleasing fashion, the genial wisdom of everyday life. He does not, however, possess Pindar's capacity to delve deeply into the essence of values or to handle the structure and essence of poetry successfully. In response to Bacchylides dubbing himself the, quote, Nightingale of Chios, end quote, there exists an epigram from the Palatine Anthology that rather aptly characterizes the elegant but rather verbose poetry of Bacchylides, saying, quote, O Pindar, Holy mouth of the muses, O Bacchylides, garrulous siren. End quote. Pindar's odes typically begin with a grand invocation to a god or the muses, followed by praise of the victor and often of the victor's family, ancestors, and home polis. Then follows a narrated myth, usually occupying the central and longest section of the poem, which exemplifies a moral while aligning the poet and his audience with the world of gods and heroes. The ode usually ends in more eulogies, for example, of trainers, if the victor is a boy, and of relatives who have won past events, as well as with prayers or expressions of hope for future success. The event where the victory was gained is never described in great detail, but there is often some mention of the hard work needed to bring about the victory. He makes rich use of decorative language and elaborate compound adjectives. Sentences are compressed to the point of obscurity. Unusual words and paraphrases give the language an esoteric quality, and transitions and meaning often seem erratic, but the images seem to burst out. It is a style that sometimes baffles, but also makes his poetry vivid and unforgettable. Furthermore, Pindar's treatment of myth is another unique aspect of his style. Since his audience would have been familiar with the traditional myths, he often implemented variations to keep them guessing. Pindar's original treatment of narrative myth, often relating events in reverse chronological order, is said to have been a favorite target for criticism by other poets. But they also resemble a circular pattern, beginning with a culminating event, followed by scenes leading up to it, and ending with its reinstatement. As we have mentioned, Pindar found himself in frequent competitions with other poets for the favors of rich patrons, and his poetry sometimes reflects this rivalry. For example, in his Olympian Ode No. 2 and Pythian Ode No. 2, composed in honor of the Sicilian tyrants Theron and Huron, following his visit to their courts in the mid-470s BC, he refers to a pair of ravens, 
apparently signifying rivals who were engaged in a campaign of smears against him, possibly the poet Simonides and his nephew Bacchylides. Simonides, as we have mentioned, was known to charge high fees for his work, and Pindar is said to have alluded to this in Isthmian Ode No. 2, where he refers to him as a hireling journeyman. Pindar didn't just attack rival poets either. He also went after the deceased too, as he often had harsh words for Archilochus, such as when he said that he had, quote, grown fat on the harsh words of hate, end quote. He also appeared in many poetry competitions. Although he won many victories, he was also defeated five times by his compatriot, the poet Carina, who we mentioned earlier. In revenge, he called her a Boeotian sow in Olympian Ode number 6. Pindar also seems to have used his odes to advance his and his friends' personal interests. In 462 BC, Pindar composed two odes in honor of Arcesilaus IV, the eighth and last king of the Badiad dynasty in Cyrene. He served as a client king under Persian authority from 465 to 440 BC and won a chariot race at the Pythian Games using native Libyan horses, which was celebrated in Pindar's Pythian Odes number 4 and 5. Pindar advises Arcesilaus in these victory odes to reconcile with his opponents, which would include him allowing Pindar's friend, Demophilus, to return from exile, and stresses the legitimacy of his rule because his family has ruled in Cyrene for eight generations. He didn't take Pindar's advice, though. His reign grew progressively more tyrannical, exiling many Cyrenian nobles and bringing in mercenaries to support his rule. As a result of his actions, the Cyrenians rebelled, forcing Arcesilaus to leave Cyrene and flee to Eusperides, or modern Benghazi in Libya with his son and only child, Battus V. Both Arcesilaus and his young son were eventually killed at the hands of Cyrenian citizens. It is said that after Battus was killed, the Cyrenians cut off his head and threw it into the sea. With Battus's beheading, Badiad rule at Cyrene ended, and the citizens thus proclaimed Cyrene to be a republic under Persian rule. Pindar's Olympian Ode number 7 deals with the boxing victory in 464 BC of Diagoras of Rhodes, who is one of the best-known and honored Greek athletes. He was victorious in boxing a total of two times at the Olympics, four times in the Isthmian Games, twice in the Nemean Games, and at least once, if not more, in the Pythian Games. Pindar, who wrote this ode many years after the fact, used it to celebrate the fame of not only Diagoras, but those of his three sons, who were also Olympic champions. The oldest son, Damagetus, won the Pancration in 452 BC, as well as in 448 BC, which was also the year that his middle son won the boxing competition. The tale that comes down to us describes Diagoras being carried on his two sons' shoulders during their victory lap around the stadion, and being cheered loudly by the spectators. This was considered the peak of happiness that a human being could experience, achieving great glory for oneself, but yet having that glory matched, or even surpassed by one's own children. Indeed, Diagoras died on the spot, and has since been considered one of the happiest mortals that has ever lived. Furthermore, his youngest son and two grandsons were all victorious in the Olympic Games too. 
Pausanias reports that his daughter, Caliptera, had disguised herself as a man and snuck into the crowd as a trainer to watch her son compete. When she was discovered, she was brought before the Hellenodokai to be tried, since it was considered sacrilege for women to attend the games, as the men performed in the nude. But since she had a father, three brothers, a son, and a nephew achieve a total of eight victories in the Olympic Games, the judges acquitted her due to her family's reputation. However, a law was henceforth passed that future trainers were to strip nude before entering the arena, which we discussed in episode 21. His fame as a poet drew Pindar into the middle of Greek politics. Athens was a rival of his home city, Thebes, and also of Agina, whose leading citizens commissioned about a quarter of his victory odes. Pindar's fellow Thebans had sided with the Persians and had incurred many losses and hardships as a result of their defeat. His praise of Athens with such epithets as the bulwark of Hellas and city of noble name and sunlit splendor in Nemean Ode number 5 induced the authorities in Thebes to fine him 5,000 drachma, to which the Athenians were said to have responded with a gift of 10,000 drachma to Pindar. According to Isocrates, the Athenians even made him their proxenos in Thebes, though this seems unlikely. His association with a fabulously rich Huron was another source of annoyance at home. It was probably in response to Theban sensitivities over this issue that he had denounced the rule of tyrants, or rulers like Huron, in his odes. Furthermore, in his Pythian Ode number 8, he describes the downfall of the giants Porphyrion and Typhon, and some scholars believe this might be Pindar's way of covertly celebrating a recent defeat of Athens at the hands of Thebes at the Battle of Coronia in 447 BC. The poem ends with a prayer for Agina's freedom, long threatened by Athenian ambitions. Even though he heaped praise on the Athenians, while possibly throwing covert shade on them as well, Pindar's worldview was diametrically opposed to that of the Democrats in Athens and elsewhere. Like Theognis, Pindar took it as axiomatic that merit was inherited. His many odes, rich in allusion and soaring in language, share a deeply held belief in an old-fashioned heroism, an excellence that takes as its starting point the assumption that men of worth spring from illustrious families that can trace their origins ultimately to divine ancestors. Writing numerous victory odes, he rises above the simple reality of the games as he praises wisdom, virtue, and beauty using magnificent images of unparalleled expressiveness in accordance with the ideals of aristocratic thought. In doing so, he connected physical prowess with all-around virtue. He reports the victories briefly, and devotes most of his poems to praising the victor by connecting their recent achievements with their divine blood and tracing the ancestry of his subjects. And thus he was able to elaborate his poems with powerful myths about gods and ancient heroes. His concern with the notion of excellence lent a lofty and inspirational quality to his verse, which was often quoted by Plato in his speculations about the highest human virtue. It is important that so much of Pindar's work has survived, not only because of the beauty of his verse, but as a reminder of the diversity of highly developed cultures in all times and places, especially in the Athenocentric classical period. 
Since these poems celebrate the values and achievements of the aristocrats, many modern readers coming to them without any prior knowledge may assume that they must have been written before the rise of democracy in Greece, but in fact they were not. His poetry illustrates the beliefs and values of archaic Greece at the dawn of the classical period. Furthermore, Pindar's view of the gods is more traditional and reverent than even Homer. In fact, he never depicts them in a demeaning role. And so, he seems indifferent to the intellectual reforms that were shaping the ideology of the times. For example, an eclipse is not merely a scientific phenomena, as contemplated by early thinkers like Thales, Anaximander, and Heraclitus. Nor was it even a subject for wonder, as it was for the earlier poet Archilochus. But instead, Pindar treated it as a portent of evil. He selects and revises traditional myths so as not to diminish the dignity and majesty of the gods. Pindar's gods are above ethical issues and it is not for men to judge them by ordinary human standards. Indeed, the finest breeds of men resulted from divine passions. Being descendants of divine unions with privileged mortals, mythical heroes are an intermediate group between gods and men, but they are still sympathetic to human failings. And so Pindar was not afraid to portray their blemishes. Some of his patrons claim divine descent, but Pindar makes all men akin to gods if they realize their full potential. Their innate gifts are divinely bestowed, and even then success still depends on the gods' active favor. In honoring such men, Pindar was honoring the gods too. For the poet, glory and lasting fame were men's greatest assurance of a life well lived. He presents no theory of history apart from the view that fortune is variable, even for the best men, an outlook suited to moderation and success and courage in adversity. Notions of good and bad and human nature were not analyzed by him in any depth, and his poems are indifferent to the ordinary mass of people. They are dismissed with phrases such as the brute multitude. Nor are the poems concerned with the fate of rich and powerful men once they lose their wealth and social status, compared, for example, with the bitter and disillusioned poems of Theognis of Megara. And so the poems are more interested in what successful men do with their good fortune. Pindar lived to about 80 years of age. He died around 440 BC while attending a festival at Argos. His ashes were taken back home to Thebes by his two daughters. The great fame he achieved during his life endured long after his death. When Alexander the Great demolished Thebes as punishment for its resistance to Macedonian expansionism, he ordered his soldiers to respect Pindar's house and leave it intact out of gratitude for verses that he composed praising his ancestor, Alexander I of Macedon. Furthermore, his work is by far the most preserved of the canonical nine lyric poets, a testament to how popular he was. The Roman author Quintilian wrote, quote, Of the nine lyric poets, Pindar is by far the greatest, in virtue of his inspired magnificence, the beauty of his thoughts and figures, the rich exuberance of his language and matter, and his rolling flood of eloquence, characteristics which, as Horace rightly held, make him inimitable, end quote. Although he was held in such esteem by ancient and modern critics, his difficult and peculiar poetry challenges the modern casual reader, and thus he is sadly largely unread amongst the general public. 
on the next episode, we will leave the realm of history for a bit and take a look at the type of figures who found themselves glorified by Pindar, those being the heroes of ancient Greek myth, as well as the various creatures whose defeat catapulted these semi-divine men into cultic figures. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 46, Monsters and Heroes. Thank you.